Welcome to the Carveline Tech Service Podcast, the go-to industrial coatings podcast. Here are your hosts, Jack Walker and Paula Jamis. Welcome to another edition of the Carveline Tech Service Podcast. I'm Jack Walker. With me, as always, is the Director of Technical Service. That's Mr. Paul, wait for it, Jamis. Also joining us this week is our marketing manager for water wastewater, that's Brian Cheshire. So if you might notice, I think this means quarantine's officially over. It sure does. All three of us are sitting in the same room. Within six feet of each other. Absolutely. Well, <laughs> it's probably not a good idea. You can't put this many big guys in a room without a wide angle lens to begin with. We couldn't be six feet away. Yeah, uh, Melissa, you'll be getting that requisition form for that wide angle lens to get me and Paul <laughs> on camera. So uh, anyway, here we are. We wanted to try something out where we're all in the same room and see how it goes. So Brian... You come on, you know, every so often. We've talked a lot about wastewater treatment plants in the past, and there are some slight differences between wastewater treatment plants and water treatment plants. So let's first start off talking about water treatment plants and how they differ from the wastewater treatment plants. Yeah, sure thing. So, so as you know, you know, wastewater is is you know we're, we're typically collecting uh, storm water. We're collecting obviously other undesirable water coming from businesses and houses and and <laughs> We're treating that and, and basically getting it to a point where it can be released back into the environment. That's a really polite way to say it. Yeah. Undesirable. Undesirable. <laughs> whereas, we clean the poo. That's right. <laughs> yeah, but whereas uh, on, on potable water drinking treatment plants, mm-hmm. um, you know, they, they, these are typically going to be a completely separate division. All things considered, if, if you go into a town, do you know, let me ask you this, like where would you typically find the drinking water plant and the wastewater treatment plant? historically hopefully the drinking water plant would be upstream of the wastewater treatment plant <laughs> ding, ding, ding. Yeah. <laughs> typically the, the highest elevation because they, yep. they want to rely on gravity to you know to help them distribute all the treated water so um so today today we're going to be talking about really the process of taking water from you know surface water from streams rivers lakes um, and turning that into a product that we can ingest safely so we're talking about that final step of the potable water mm-hmm. process, which we have talked about the potable water linings and stuff mm-hmm. in the past with you. So That's correct. Yeah. kind of bring it all together. Correct. Yeah. But I would say probably more on the water storage side. Um, we really haven't gotten into the actual treatment steps, I guess, you know, right. before we're getting there. Yep. So. Sure. And, uh, you know, back in the day, I'm not sure if this one still exists, but if you're from St. Louis and you've been to the St. Louis Science Center, we used to have a water fountain. And this water fountain had this tank that was see-through that was the most disgusting water you've ever seen. I don't think there was actually poop in it. But when you would push <laughs> the button on the water fountain, the tank would go glub-glub to make you think that you were drinking processed water. And so that's kind of what I think about here a little bit as I think back to my youth with this water fountain that I'm not really sure if it was drinking out of that water, but every kid was always like, I don't know, do you want to drink that? And then if the kid went and drank from it, you'd always make fun of the kid. And it's funny, but like that process is kind of what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. So why don't you give us a little bit of a history as to the, the water treatment process for drinking water? Yeah, sure thing, Paul. So, you know, if you're a history buff, I mean, dating back to ancient civilizations, pretty much every ancient civilization was founded near a water source. Yep. They were concerned about quantity of water quality of water 
they didn't really know as much about. So. Montezuma's Revenge. Correct. So, <laughs> um, so over time, you know, there, there were different methods that got introduced to really improve the taste and the odor of water. Um, and, I mean, there, there, there's history dating back to like 1500 B.C. where Egyptians actually used um, alum to clarify their water supply. And so it, it's been around for quite a while, but it really wasn't until like the... 19th and 20th centuries, um, late 19th century, when you started getting pandemics, which unfortunately sounds yeah. familiar now. Yeah, no kidding. Um, and they were able to trace some of this back to the water supply. And so there, there really became a research push after that into how do we eliminate these microbes and bacteria that, that are causing these pandemics. Absolutely. That is a, a real source for, for a healthy neighborhood and environment of society mm-hmm. is having clean water to be able to drink. That's correct. Absolutely. So let's take that next step. What is the process when they, they get that water? What, what is the first step in that process? Yeah, so, so typically a community is going to pull from generally one of two sources. It's either going to be groundwater, uh, which is going to be aquifers. And then there's also their surface waters, which are going to be you know, lakes, rivers, streams, ponds, so on. So, so generally they're, they're going to intake from those sources. Uh, they're, they're generally going to have screening to capture some of the bigger options. You know, because you don't want shoes and uh, washing machines and other things, you know, trying to go to the treatment plant. So um, heavily regulated industry. So, so yeah, so, so it's, it's intake, shipped to the treatment facility, and then they start the dosing process with chemicals is, is really the first step. But after that, then you start seeing um, a process called coagulation or flocculation, which is really aiming to remove dirt and other particles. And so... Within that process, you're, you're taking alum and you're adding it to the water in a, in a mixed tank. And I don't know if you, I don't know if you have a, a thing that leaps things out, but I'm, I'm seriously not about to say say a bad word. But, oh. um, but anyway, but this, <laughs> but this alum is added to the water in the mixed tank, and it forms these sticky particles called flock. F-L-O-C. But these attract dirt particles and... And what ends up happening is as they go through this process, they end up going to a, a sedimentation basin from there, slows down the flow, gravity takes over, heavy sediment settles to the bottom. So really what, what Brian's describing, if anybody hasn't seen it before, if you have a swimming pool, you do this to your pool periodically. You'll put flocculent, you'll add to it so that it gathers up all those little particles. And in a swimming pool, you're looking at, you know, dead skin and, and you know, anything that falls out of the sky. You, you've got pollen and all the other stuff. You're trying to gather it up because sometimes it's too thin to even get into your filter properly. And you can add this to it. That's really what this first step is. So we use it all over in society. The water treatment process really has mastered this for the rest of us to be able to use in other steps. Yeah, that's definitely. Yeah, so after, I would say, you know, coagulation, flocculation, sedimentation, then the water has to be filtered. And so they'll run these through, you know, granular media like sand, uh, charcoal even. Um, I mean, there's various different forms of media out there. But more or less, it's just, you know, I mean, still still a pretty pretty primitive system, I guess. It's simplistic yeah. in nature. Been around forever. But the goal is to remove a lot of the smaller particles. And if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, a, it's a system that's become very refined, easy to work with, easy to maintenance. Yeah. And, and so from there, you know, you, you, you've, you've filtered out a lot of the particles, but the problem is, is, is you really haven't killed the microbes or bacteria. So that's where chlorine treatment and then even some advanced treatment methods like ozone and 
I'm, I'm sure you run into yeah. a bunch of them, you know, because there, there's a lot of them, you know, emerging yeah, we, contaminants and new processes to really look at. Yeah, we've seen a lot down. of ozone has been a big one. Uh, UV sterilization has been a big one lately. Um, just some other ways to help maybe reduce some of the chemicals that are being mm -hmm. used for something that's less, less chemically. You know, ozone's in the atmosphere. It's a gas. It kills a lot of stuff. Peroxides are another one. You see a lot of peroxide mm -hmm. in those. Yep. And I think that's an important step to talk about real quick. I know that we're going to talk a little bit more about coatings that you find later on. But one of the things that happens here is this is frequently a misinformed call for a recommendation at this stage of the treatment. <laughs> because very frequently you will get a call that uh, something needs to be resistant to a caustic or an acid at very high concentrations. And then you have to remind whoever's calling that those high concentrations of basic and acid solutions are going into gallons and gallons and gallons and gallons of water, so you're really reducing your concentration. So you don't need something that's resistant to that pure slug of chemical that goes in. You need something that is going to be resistant to the entirety of the thing when it, when it comes. And on that note, the other thing that you see a lot of is the call that misinterprets when somebody says, we need something that's in an NSF system, I need my... 93% sulfuric acid tank to be potable water approved. Sulfuric acid is not potable water approved. It is not no. potable water. You're putting it in at parts per million to do these clarification processes. So a tank lining that has to be resistant to sulfuric acid at these concentrations is not always the best candidate to also be potable water approved. <clears throat> so where is the next step in the process after this? So really, after you've gone through all those steps, you've, you've disinfected, a lot of times they will end up storing that treated water on site in a reservoir or clear well. And then from there, it's, it's typically distributed either to homes or businesses, or even in some cases, depending on the system, stored in, a, in another storage tank along the way. But a lot of that depends on the elevation, depends on, you know, the cost of transporting it. You know, I mean, re really, how, how far do they have to go and, mm -hmm. you know, what kind of terrain do they have to go over to get there? Everybody's familiar with our Carbothane 134HG. But what we did is we took that and we put some more UV resistance in there. And that's where we got the Carbothane 134 UV Ultra. This exceeds the SSPC coding specification number 36, level 3A. That is the highest you can get. Can't get any higher than that. So this is the top of the line UV resistance that you can get in a polyurethane. It is suitable for your AWWA OCS systems uh, 5, 6, and 7. But basically, you would want to use this anywhere where you want exceptional UV resistance, color and gloss retention. This is your product, the Carbothane 134 UV Ultra. So then, now that's kind of the, the process, and, we, and we're familiar with the process. What are some of the substrates that we find in these treatment facilities? Yeah, so, I mean, it's really the same that you see in wastewater for okay. the most part. Um, but one thing to remember is, you know, typically this is going to be a less caustic process, I guess, you know, where we've talked extensively about hydrogen sulfide attack and some sure. of the different things that happen in wastewater systems. Um, you don't have that near as much here, um, but you do, do still have to consider water chemistry, um, looking at the pH of the water, the, you know, the total dissolved solids, um, alkalinity, hardness. So there, there are different levels of service that have to be considered. And it, and it really depends on the, on the system, the water makeup, mm -hmm. uh, the water chemistry. 
So it's definitely important to ask a lot of those questions, yeah. I would say, on the front end. But I would say one thing on, on the coating side, you know, when we're looking at coating concrete, so in these first few stages, you're still treating this water, so you don't necessarily need NSF certification this early in the process. <laughs> sure. However, um, pretty much every specification I see, they require that it be NSF throughout, throughout right. all of these different concrete structures. And so that, that has really become a necessity, and that's something you see a lot of. Um, and that may be, you know, a three-coat epoxy system. It may be a 100% solids um, epoxy or even a 100% solids polyurethane, but all having that NSF designation. Yeah, yeah. It kind of makes it a little easier for the people who are putting the systems together if they just say, yep, it's all approved. You know, they like that step. Well, do you think there's anything to maybe they don't want to introduce any that, you know, they're trying to filter the water, so they don't yeah. want to introduce anything new or even early yeah. in the process? Yeah, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a big part of it. I mean, you're introducing an additional contaminant that now you've got to, got to treat for. It, sure. So, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. So I, I definitely understand the methodology there. Yep. Um, but, but on concrete, I mean, you do see some atmospheric um, exposure as well, you know, such as, you know, I mentioned the, the clear wells on site. Mm -hmm. Those have to be coated on the outside generally. Um, a lot of times they'll have just a, an elastomeric acrylic material, uh, just something really to protect it against wind-driven rain and keep, keep water from uh, penetrating from that side. Yeah. yeah. So other than concrete, what do you find? Yeah, so there's still a lot of steel, uh, and, the, and there's a good bit of ductile iron in these facilities. And so um, often with steel... And really with ductile iron as well, you're having to color code because there's a lot. If you've ever been in a treatment yep. plant and been in the the, gal the pipe galleries, mm -hmm. a lot of pipes. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And they have to be color coded depending on what's coming through it. And so um, if, if it's interior exposure, epoxies are okay generally in that sense. Obviously outside urethanes, mm -hmm. uh, you, you want that to be your top coat to give the UV protection. Um, but one thing to really consider, though, is, is on, these, uh, on these substrates, when you get into these pipe galleries, these are very damp areas. A lot of sweating. Yeah. And so this is where your phenalkamines and some of your surface tolerant materials really come into play. And we're even seeing, too, um, and I'm sure you get calls on this, but uh, we're seeing coatings used for condensation control as well, yes. which is a, a totally different animal, but right. they're looking to somewhat eliminate the problem there. Yeah. Because it is such a such an issue with these plants. Yeah, phenalkamines are really important when you're dealing with sweaty pipe. Correct. <laughs> um, but, but I will say the la the last thing I wanted to talk about, I guess, with within the treatment plan and talking about coatings, you know, with a lot of these emerging contaminants, you, know, you you hear a lot of news about like the firefighting foam, PFOS, mm -hmm. and and some of these other chemicals, what they call forever chemicals that can't be broken down. Right. The way to attack that is some of these advanced treatment methods. And so we're really seeing an uptick in like reverse osmosis, ultrafiltration, um, membrane type technology. And so the key to those are um, it is basically the, these membranes are catching a lot of the really fine particulate. Um, but over time, they have to maintain those. And so they end up having to backwash these tanks, mm -hmm. which can become a very abrasive environment. So, so I would say if you're looking at, at a structure in that portion of the plant, that's where you really need to consider something like an a, 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 a aromatic polyurethane that has good abrasion numbers or even some reinforced systems if, it, if it's you know, quite a bit of backwashing. One of the terms that we frequently hear and say, especially with the carbon filter tanks, 
you hear the phrase in situ regeneration, which basically is just you're taking the carbon filter media or in some cases a sand media and they do a multi-stage wash where they'll bubble through like a sulfuric acid wash and then a caustic wash and then a neutralization wash. But all that happens inside the tank that has the filter media in it. So they don't take the filter out, the media out. They leave it in and it gets bubbled through and it helps to purify it and it reactivates the carbon. So that way it can filter stuff again. And that process, now you have to have a potable water tank lining that's resistant to sulfuric acid, resistant to sodium hydroxide, and is still potable water rated. That's where you really get into some specialty coatings that require a lot of good abrasion numbers, good chemical resistance. And, and as, you know, as we're finding out more about, I mean, this, is, this has been an ongoing process. We talked about dates back to 1500 BC, but I, I would say there's still discoveries that are happening yeah. surrounding water treatment. So as, you, as we continue to, I guess, evolve with the environment and new contaminants, I mean, you're going to see more and more of these different approaches and then even different configurations. You know, and that, yeah. That's one thing I did, I did want to point out earlier, talking about the process. Um, there's really no cookie cutter way to do a plant. <laughs> right. They may be in all kinds of different orders and different combinations. Mm-hmm. So you really can't walk in two plants and expect them to be the same. Right. Yeah. That is something you see a lot of is, is you know, you have to ask what's your, what's your design? What do you mm-hmm. look like? What's, what do you have going where? Because they're all unique. All right. Well, we're getting a little long on time, but before we stop, I wanted to bring up, you know, Paul talked about some of the specialty coatings and the need for specialty coatings. What are some of the carboline products that we use in these areas? Yeah, so, you know, t- t- talking earlier about some of the core products, you know, some of the NSF epoxies, you know, mm-hmm. products like our CarboGuard 635, 635VOC, mm-hmm. um, even get into 100% solids materials, we're talking phenylon tank shield. Um, and then on the polyurethane side, we're talking reactamine 760 or even mm-hmm. 760HB if it, if it you know, is, a, is a very abrasive area. Yep. But I will say, too, there, there's an, another part I didn't touch on, but um, when you get into a treatment plant, there's, there's also a lot of pumps and, and other equipment. Mm-hmm. And with, with Carbolon's recent acquisition of Dudic, they actually have a line of materials that are designed to repair those. Okay. And so, you know, yet another solution that now, now we can offer. Absolutely. They've got a fantastic line of, of steel repair materials mm-hmm. to be able to go in and fix when you have impellers that are damaged or or pump parts that need some reinforcement to them. They've got a great line of liquid steel kind of products to be able to go in and do those repairs. Not to mention supplementing for secondary containment systems, Mm -hmm. um, reinforced systems. There's a lot of great offerings. So although we've always had a very comprehensive offering, the the recent acquisition of Dudic has greatly expanded the offerings that we're able to bring as a full service supplier into these industries. And I'm glad you brought up secondary containment because if, you, if you've been in a, a water treatment plant, there are quite a few chemicals that are yep. stored on site. And mm-hmm. so um, having, I guess, a robust line, I guess, of, of different options to be yep. able to address that is, is very important because different chemicals act differently. Yeah. Very Dudic point. being a concrete specialty company has always had, they've got a great line of grouts and, and concrete leveling and surfacing uh, products that we're able to now offer as part of the Carboline offering. All right. Well, that's it for the Carboline Tech Service Podcast this week. Brian, thank you very much for joining us again. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Brian. All right. For Paul, Brian, I'm Jack. We'll see you guys later.